if you're doing you know an hour of hit cardio six days a week they're resistance training and they're in a calorie deficit those things are likely to really negatively impact someone's energy availability for the purposes of muscle recovery Hi friends, I think most of us want to be in good shape. We want to increase our health span, not just our lifespan. But what are the implications of extreme fasting on the female body, of calorie deficits? And also if you have a history, for example, of an eating disorder, simply just tracking your food can cause problems and a resurgence in those thoughts that sometimes may have plagued you in the past. So how can you get lean and healthy and feel fit and vibrantly full of energy in a way that is healthy for both your mind and body and specific for women. Well, I'm excited to introduce you to today's guest. It is Holly Baxter, who is a dietitian and science educator, and she's been involved in the health and fitness industry for over 30 years. She graduated from Deakin University as a food scientist and nutritionist in 2011 and went on to complete her Master of Dietetics in 2013, and she now practices as a clinical dietitian and online science educator. She's been heavily involved in sports throughout her life. She's an author, speaker, and one of the leading females in the nutrition and fitness industry. And amazingly, she continues to participate in the sport of bodybuilding as a professional physique athlete, claiming two world championship level wins in the natural fitness division she definitely knows her stuff when it comes to nutrition and fitness i learned a ton on this episode i think you will too so without further delay let me introduce you now to holly baxter so holly thank you so much for joining us today i'm really excited to talk to you about the female body and how to really optimize our training and nutrition um, for kind of the ultimate edge in fitness firstly a very warm welcome to the show thank you so much for having me so I guess the first um, thing is, can you give listeners a little bit about your background? How did you get into bodybuilding? Yeah, so it's a funny, long story, but I'll try to keep it uh, brief um, for the, the key points. I think uh, originally I was uh, pretty sporty as a kid. So I did every sport you could think of, um, but my favorites were you know, basketball. I did track sprinting and athletics. Um, and I competed at a very high level um, back when I was living in Australia. So I'm located in Florida, uh, USA now, um, recently relocated in 2017. But um, I, I guess growing up in Australia, there weren't really a whole lot of opportunities as a young female um, to pursue a career in sport. And it was really unfortunate because I, I loved it. And I think I kind of got to that point where you're making some pretty big decisions about, you know, going off to college and or pursuing my you know, dream uh, to be like an Olympic athlete. And it just didn't weigh up for me. So I guess the closest thing to that um, was to put myself in, you know, from an educational standpoint to kind of work with these people. Um, so I went off and did uh, a master's uh, in dietetics. And I also did an undergraduate um, in food science and nutrition. So I kind of threw myself in from the nutrition standpoint. Um, that was obviously a really important part of my training. And uh, it actually also contributed to uh, a lifetime of disordered eating, which I'm sure we'll get into maybe at some point throughout the podcast today. But um, I definitely had a very strong focus on, you know, how to optimize my uh, physique for my performance. So 
Um, after kind of graduating from my master's, I uh, went off and did clinical uh, dietetics for a little while um, and found myself kind of working across uh, a wide range of different patient groups. So uh, interestingly, dietitians actually work with um, quite a few unique uh, subsets of populations, probably more than I guess the average person would know about. Um, I think if I quizzed, you know, nine out of 10 people would say, hey, yeah, they work for, you know, fat loss or weight loss predominantly. Um, but we actually work with cardiothoracic patients. We work with uh, infectious disease, uh, hepatic, you know, liver patients, people with uh, kidney problems and a host of other different um, disease states. So uh, I found that when I was working in that clinical environment, um, the people there were so like opposing to my, you know, motivations. They didn't have that drive to be healthy. They didn't want to be, um, you know, ref like refining and tailoring their nutrition to, you know, optimize their health or, you know, their longevity. It was, it was really, really depressing. And, you know, I just didn't find that very fulfilling. So after, you know, I think it was about 18 months, I stayed in the clinical space and I was like, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> it's making me miserable. Like, you know, you've got these patients there that are being referred by their doctor that don't even want to be there. Um, so I opened my own practice and uh, I also kind of around the same time um, opened up a gym and was running like, uh, you know, a, an unlimited number of boot camps to our uh, participants, people that would uh, join up and become members of our club. Uh, and then I was also doing uh, clinical dietetics, um, but with people that were more sports specific. Um, so that was right up my alley. You know, these people were motivated. They were full fee paying. They wanted to be there and I just loved it. So um, it wasn't until I started working with physique competitors uh, to kind of optimize their uh, body composition for their shows that I even really knew about bodybuilding. Like that was not even on my radar when I was, you know, a young teenager. So um, it was a client of mine that I was working with who suggested, hey, have you ever thought about competing? You know, you're kind of very sporty and athletic. So uh, the only reason that I really jumped into the world of bodybuilding, at least, and becoming a physique competitor was that the world championships in 2015 were being held in Dubai. Um, and that was one place that I'd always wanted to travel. Australians, we just love traveling. So yeah, I, uh, in order to get to the world championships, we had to win our state shows uh, and then uh, qualify at nationals, place in top three. Uh, and then you could go and compete for your country. So uh, that was my first kind of, um, I guess, step into the world of physique competitions. Uh, and then I guess the rest is really history. <laughs> Everything that I've done since then um, certainly has a connection with uh, body composition, but my my take and my stance on physique sports has really changed. And part of that is just because of my own, uh, I guess, healing journey um, through, you know, my eating disorder over those years and having now come out the other side some 15 years later. Um, you know, I really just, I have an appreciation for that sport and I still compete, which is kind of a, a funny dichotomy, but, um, and I can talk about why. But I, I really feel like all the products and services now that I am involved in and that we provide are tailored to females, um, probably who have experienced similar things to myself. 
um, that are trying to improve their, not only their health, but, you know, their body composition. So, yeah, I am involved in a lot of different things and certainly take the stance of an evidence-based approach. So I'd say we are a science-based company. To optimise my sleep each night, there are two things that I do that are my non-negotiables. The first is to get outside and get early access to morning light. And the second one is to block blue light in the evening with blue light blocking glasses. And the best lenses I found are those by Bon Charge. They don't let any of that sneaky light come in underneath the lens, which I used to find really annoying when I was reading my Kindle and things like that. These lenses block all the blue light and they're super high quality and the great thing is they look really stylish too. On Charge's glasses are made in optics laboratories in Australia. They're not mass produced in factories in Asia and they have science-backed technology that's been tested to ensure they work. And as I say, they have dramatically improved my sleep. I'm sleeping longer, deeper and I'm feeling refreshed the next morning. And the cool thing about their glasses is they come in non-prescription, prescription and reading options. They also have glasses for every need, including computer glasses to help with digital eye strain, light sensitivity glasses for helping with low mood and migraines, and the blue light blocking glasses that I'm using for improving sleep. They also have other amazing products such as blue, low blue light bulbs, red light therapy devices, EMF 5G protection. I have that on my mobile phone. I have that on my kids' mobile phones. And I also wear their uh, Bond Charges EMF blocking bracelet and their 100% blackout sleep masks, all backed by science. And Bond Charge ship worldwide in rapid time with easy returns and exchanges. And you can save a cool 20% off any of their products in their range. Simply go to bondcharge.com forward slash Angela and use coupon code Angela to save 20%. That's B-O-N-C-H-A-R-G-E dot com slash Angela, and use coupon code Angela to save yourself 20%. I've done a few of your workouts myself. Oh, uh, I think, uh, yeah, I've done like, uh, there's an amazing one that you put out all on shoulders. And I was like, oh my God, I haven't thought about doing so many different exercises with shoulders. <laughs> like, yeah, your YouTube channel is amazing. Um, and I guess with that background, you were talking there about eating disorders and your background in dietetics, presumably you approach this for, from a very health conscious perspective, right? Because there's a healthy way to compete and mm-hmm. an unhealthy way. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to kind of dive into some of that with you. Um, I guess, first of all, when we look at it from a nutrition perspective, when someone's looking to make body composition changes, what are the the key things that you think they should focus on? Um, I think if anyone's just trying to improve their physique and I mean, I immediately think of, you know, reducing body fat, but also simultaneously increasing lean body mass. Um, I guess the best way that we can you know, achieve that is through uh, incorporating a high protein diet uh, and then moderating our caloric intake. And there are a plethora of ways that we can do that, um, which is why we tend to see so many different types of dietary approaches, you know, having a lot of success. Um, and I think it's really important to recognize that um, everybody has like a unique um, preference for certain foods. 
Um, and I think it's important to, you know, perhaps try the plethora of dietary approaches out there until you can find one that actually resonates with you. Because if we look at all of the research on uh, what, are the, what are the most um, predominant uh, char uh, characteristics that are linked to long-term weight loss maintenance, um, it tends to be uh, compliance or dietary adherence. So you've got to find something that you really like uh, that you can stick to long term. And then I guess the other thing that's really important then is just finding some kind of activity, exercise, doesn't really matter what it is, uh, but something that gets you moving. And hopefully it's something that you can enjoy in the process. So they're really the three key things I think that uh, lead to long term uh, healthy bodies. Um, and, you know, at the same time, the value add is maybe a good looking physique too. <laughs> Yeah, which is an, a welcome side effect. Um, <laughs> yeah. But you're so right. I mean, if you don't enjoy exercise or you don't enjoy the way you're eating, you're never going to stick with it. And that adherence is so, so, so key, isn't it? Mm. Um, when you're looking at kind of macronutrients, obviously like the protein consideration there, I'm always telling my clients, increase the protein, increase the protein. I think people struggle with this. Do you generally advocate that it's around a gram per pound of body weight in terms of getting the sweet spot for that mm -hmm. body composition. Yeah, look, I think um, if we were to look at all of the uh, science um, on that specific topic, if we're looking at protein requirements for purposes of hypertrophy, so building muscle, um, it tends to be within a, a certain range. So I think one gram per pound of lean body mass up to about 1.3 grams um, per pound of lean body mass. Or for anyone that's listening from the rest of the world and that they use the metric of grams per kilogram, uh, I like to use the range of, say, 1.8 grams of protein per kilogram of lean body mass up to about 2.9 grams of protein per kilogram of lean body mass. So the beauty is it's a range. So there isn't one particular point along that range that is going to be, you know, optimal. Now, maybe if you err on the side or the higher end of that range, and we look at maybe like a 15 year, you know, training lifespan, um, perhaps if you sat at the upper end of that range, you may have a small but significant increase in your lean body mass um, over that time frame than sitting at the lower end. But I think Ultimately, uh, we've got to be able to find uh, a balanced or an, an amount of protein that uh, works with your dietary preferences because the science can point, you know, all things towards high protein, but if you really aren't an advocate of protein and, um, you know, it means that you're sacrificing, you know, carbohydrates and dietary fats that are also, you know, important to you as an individual um, for long-term, you know, sustainability of that diet, um, then it's more likely that you're going to end up over-consuming your calories, um, and then ultimately, you know, if that's done consistently over many years, then you're not going to achieve at least the level of leanness um, that you want, because totally total calorie intake paired with protein are like the two predominant factors that we would be looking for, um, for, you know, the optimal, um, you know, physique. And have you found any within that once you've got those two things kind of nailed, have you found any differences with the proportion of fats and carbs? Like for me, um, I just find nuts and nut butters so addictive and it's the easiest way for me to be like to drop off in terms of that lean scale a little bit and when I dial that back but I think that's very individual like some people seem to be more sensitive than others I'm curious as to what you found 
Yeah, so uh, again, if we were to cite um, the latest research in um, fat loss, so if we look at all of the weight loss studies, and this would be in obese populations and uh, healthy, uh, normal body weight uh, individuals, uh, there doesn't seem to be any advantages between a diet that is high in carbohydrate uh, and low in fat, um, provided that um, calories and protein are held constant, versus a diet that is uh, high in carbo sorry high in fat and low in carbohydrate. Um, it really doesn't seem to make much of an impact uh, on someone's ability to lose body fat. Um, overall, what is going to govern that rate of weight loss really is the degree of the calorie deficit um, and then the consistency with, um, you know, a high protein diet. So that's actually really good news because it means that there is so much more, um, you know, dietary options for people, um, you know, if they're looking to, you know, shed a little bit of uh, excess body fat uh, and improve their overall health and wellness. Yeah. And I suppose the thing with fats, right, is they're more calorific and they're very easy to overeat. Yeah, I just want to add in like terrific as well. I'm such a butter <laughs> fan as well. I think I have like seven different containers in my uh, pantry at the moment for different flavors and things. But but that's the thing. I think the beauty of it is that you don't have to subscribe to one or the other. Um, I used to be uh, very um, rigid in my approach to my nutrition prior to kind of, you know, reading more about, you know, the, the research on, you know, the, the ratio of carbohydrates and fats um, in relation to fat loss. And um, I would really try so hard to hit one specific number uh, and I would have the same target of carbohydrates and fats like every single day. Um, and I think the beauty of, um, you know, the, the scientific field is that there is so many more studies being done. And we now know that you can chop and change. Uh, it doesn't mean that you have to subscribe to one all the time. Um, so for me, and I know for a lot of my clients, um, I, only do, I only give them a calorie target and a protein target. And they really have the liberty uh, to change out, you know, their remaining calories uh, based on how they're feeling. What, what, what are you in the mood for from a, you know, a satiation standpoint? And there is sometimes where it's really important that we focus on um, satiety from, you know, a gut fullness perspective. But then there are other times when it's also important to focus on gut satiety um, and how, you know, we perceive that food. You know, is it pleasurable? Do we get joy from that food? So it's important to strike a nice balance between those um, and you have the flexibility to do that. So, um, yeah, I, I definitely oscillate between carbs and fats, um, you know, most days. But the downside to something like that is that for people that are perhaps new to tracking macros, for instance, um, it is a little bit more work. And, you know, there is some math. I mean, if you've got a certain amount of calories remaining in a day from carbs and fats, and ultimately, you can put them all towards carbs if you wanted to and have, you know, basically a carb only type meal. And a good example might be like, I don't know, some uh, cinnamon toast crunch cereal and then, um, you know, some kind of um, milk product on top. Right. So you'd be getting some protein and you'd be getting some carbohydrate there and you could effectively do that. Um, but it means you have to kind of work out, well, you know, if I had 10 grams of fat left, what amount of calories can I then shift over to carbs? And you, you have to do that math. Mm. Um, we developed an app actually that does all that for you, which is really convenient. But um, I think the beauty is that you can ultimately have that flexibility. 
I will say there's one downside to people that choose to kind of have more, um, you know, of a, a flux in their dietary intake. And that is just due to how carbohydrate and how dietary fiber uh, impacts our body weight on the scale. Um, Unfortunately, when we, well, I guess it depends on how you look at this, when we consume carbohydrate uh, and we're no longer, there's no longer an immediate need for that carbohydrate, it's obviously stored in our muscle tissue and our liver uh, as glycogen. So um, glycogen is stored with water. Uh, and for every one gram of glycogen that is stored, we also store it with, you know, somewhere in the realm of say 2.5 to 2.7 mil of water. That's just how glycogen is stored inside the tissues. So um, we tend to see people's weight jump up, um, even if calories are equated and they're having the same amount of protein, just because they're trading out more of those fats and putting them towards carbs, even though the energy density is very similar, you still see your weight move on the scale. And that terrifies a lot of people, mm, particularly when they're not educated about, you know, how carbohydrates are stored. So, you know, I think, it can make it more difficult for people that perhaps they're in a fat loss phase and they're going through the motions of their, you know, their diet. And then one day they decide to have more carbohydrates and they take out lots of their fats. Uh, and maybe that also means that they eat more dietary fiber. If we think about where dietary fiber comes from, it's predominantly our, you know, carbohydrate based foods. So we would not only then see a big shift in stored muscle glycogen and water, but now we've also got more food coming in um, that is going to sit in the digestive tract that has a physical weight um, associated with it. And people's weight can jump up, you know, by a, a meaningful number of percent. <laughs> so um, I think once people have that understanding that, oh, my weight could actually go up by one or two percent. Um, from one day to the next, just because of my macronutrient distribution, it gives them a bit more sense of comfort and ease um, because now, you know, you're empowered, you're informed, you've got that knowledge. So it kind of understand helps that. people with that fear of the scale. Um, and then they can start to justify it a little bit more. And I think, um, you know, I've certainly seen that in the people that I'm working with. If you're in a rush in the morning like me, you need some high quality nutrition and protein post-workout maybe you're grab and go on the school run much like my days then here is a little smoothie you can whiz up super quickly that gives you high quality nutrition i generally mix a couple of scoops of protein powder with one uh, scoop of creatine for the neurological and muscle boosting benefits and then i add in tons of ice with my ag1 and kind of blend and go ag1 is made with 75 super high quality vitamins minerals and whole food source ingredients and so i know that i'm getting the high quality nutrition in alongside the protein in the morning to boost my mood my immune system and give me sustained energy throughout the day and if you want to take ownership of your health today is a good time to start because athletic greens is giving away a free one-year supply of vitamin d and five free travel packs with your first purchase all you need to do is go to athleticgreens.com forward slash angela foster that's athleticgreens.com forward slash angela foster and check it out I definitely want to come on to that in a moment, actually, in terms of the mindset and them feeling comfortable in terms of tracking and also your own experience mm -hmm. um, with kind of body sort of issues and things and, and just surrounding mental health. But before we do that, when you're describing that, that actually they would in that situation weigh a bit heavier on the scales, 
would they then notice, like if they're looking for that really lean and defined look by increasing carbohydrates and drawing in more of that water, how would that affect the aesthetics when they're looking in the mirror? Absolutely. So you will see a visual shift. Now, I guess one of the interesting things about this is that, you know, if we look at, you know, our elite athletes, so your top physique athletes, um, part of the protocol uh, leading into getting on stage um, is uh, a carb loading period. Now, you might be wondering, well, okay, she's just said we're eating all these carbs and it brings a lot of water. Uh, I wonder what that does to somebody's physique. Well, in uh, an adequate amount, it's actually going to make the muscle appear nice and full and round. And that's exactly what you want to see on stage. Um, the last thing you want to see is a really flat, you know, depleted muscle because it has no shape about it. Um, but when we eat uh, in, uh, I guess, a surplus or, you know, outside of what our normal uh, carbohydrate consumption is, um, instead of that uh, carbohydrate and water uh, moving into the uh, intracellular space of our tissue, uh, it ends up sitting in the extracellular space. So that is when we start to see some of those kind of blurred lines. You know, you might be used to seeing a lot more definition in your legs. Um, and I would use the same example as, if you've done a really hard workout and you've got that acute inflammatory response to training and your legs are all puffy and they're full and tight, um, that can kind of distort the look of a defined muscle. So I know for me, if I go out and have sushi and I've had a ton of carbohydrate and then let's add some salts and sodium to that, which also draws in a lot more water. I just look like a watermelon. <laughs> so like I can go <laughs> within the matter of minutes. It's like I look, you can look very defined and I can see like some feathering in my thigh. And then all of a sudden, if I try to flex my thigh, it's like, oh, wait, my muscles go. And it's not that you've added body fat, um, but it can look like that. And I think that's a very stark difference uh, for when people look in the mirror. Um, so, you know, I, I think once people have that understanding that, oh, if I eat a lot of carbohydrates all at once, like I go out for a big dinner and it's super salty, like you're probably going to look a little bit, um, you know, washed out probably the next day. So um, it is, it's difficult, you know, to see that in the mirror. But again, I think that's why knowledge is power. Uh, and it helps you, you know, um, give yourself a little bit more compassion, because you're not sitting there going, oh, my gosh, I've put on all this body fat. Now, I even know for me, if I do put on a bit, a bit of body fat, it's not the end of the world. I'm like, I'm a human. It's, it's part of my body's processes. But I think as you're kind of in that recovery phase uh, and learning to accept your body, you know, as it is, wh wherever it is on the on the scale, however much your body fat percentage is, um, I think that's a nice way to kind of start to ease that um, negativity that's associated with an increased, um, you know, scale weight or just seeing your body change in response to certain types of foods. For sure. I'm so glad you clarified that. Um, thank you. When we're looking at mental health, because obviously it is a, a big issue for many people, and particularly if, you know, they historically as teenagers, I think many of us, uh, me included, kind of were restricting our food intake and things. It's really difficult to leave that part of you behind. How do you approach that with your clients in terms of them tracking what they're eating and their macros and their overall calories without them becoming obsessed? I know you mm -hmm. said you have an app as well that's helpful. How do you approach that? 
Yeah. So I think honestly, like the most important thing is like like learn. You've got to learn and know about your client, um, and you have to be able to meet them where they are at. And the that range, that spectrum is you know very spanning. So uh, I think it depends on you know that individual. Um, but let's take an example of somebody that is um, you know extremely you know body focused. Um, there's a lot of, uh, I guess, negative associations with their physique. Maybe there's a lot of value, self-worth um, uh, tied into their physical appearance. Um, those people are, um, it's really difficult to, to work with, not, not because it's, um, it, it's challenging as a coach, I think, to be able to kind of tap in and break into uh, their, their mindset and understand the narrative. Um, but once there is an established trust and, you know, open communication, um, and I, I honestly try to be really transparent um, in my own, you know, journeys uh, myself and then examples of other clients, I think once you can establish that trust, um, then you can start to kind of let or the client feels more comfortable to start sharing, you know, what's really going on in their mind. And one of the little tasks I think that I start off with uh, for anybody that's brand new um, is to just start to tap into their self-awareness. Uh, and often that means really slowing down. Um, I think everybody today is hustle, hustle, hustle. You know, we're always rushing and running around. Um, and we tend to kind of switch over into like a default mode or autopilot. Um, so that really takes us away from like our conscious thought. And now we're kind of, you know, doing all these things on a day-to-day -day basis, like almost subconsciously. It just happens out of our habit. So step one is really getting them to move back into their conscious mind and start listening to what they're saying. So I will have them report to me, okay, what are three things that you've noticed um, that you tell yourself that are, you know, negative? And they might come back at a check-in and say, well, you know, I was standing in front of the mirror and I recall myself saying, you know, yuck, oh, oh my gosh, my body looks so gross. Oh, I'm so fat. Oh, my clothes don't fit me very well. So we start to kind of identify the narrative uh, and some of the language um, and what they're kind of telling themselves, like what, what are their beliefs of themselves? And then we start to push back on some of those narratives. And another homework task would be, okay, I want you to come up with, you know, for the three things that you've identified that are negative, I want you to think of three things that you can say that would, um, you know, push back on that comment, that would uh, try to, you know, um, negate that. So they'll come up with something that they can say, so that now we're kind of bringing in new thoughts. Um, and ultimately, you know, if you've had an established behavior for a really long time, or a certain belief for a really long time, um, those thoughts are very automatic. Um, you know, we don't have a lot of control over the thoughts that are coming into our mind, but what we can do are, is control the thoughts that we add to. So over time, I think the more we can kind of hear those other voices, uh, and I'll call them like affirmations or um, some kind of, um, uh, I guess, mindset shift that they want, I'll have people put little stickers all over their mirrors, or they'll have like something that's um, available to them all the time or like sticky notes on their fridge. Um, just that repetitiveness um, of this new thought, eventually uh, over time they will start to believe it. Um, and originally when you first start this, I think it, it kind of feels like a bit of imposter syndrome and you do not believe what you're telling yourself. 
Um, but if people stick with it and they really are like determined to feel differently about their body and about themselves and their value and their worth, if they continue to work at it, eventually over time, you know, their narrative does change. Those beliefs do change. And then now they're this new person and the predominant thought are the positive ones. So it's, it's quite a process, but as far as I know that you'd ask specifically about like macro tracking, um, I think that uh, some people are really in a position to, you know, track at the same time. Like they like that. That's the one sense of control that they still have. So I think, you know, removing that all of a sudden is not a good strategy. I think it's something that you have to do pretty gradually. Um, so I might start out with uh, reducing your tracking uh, for one meal per day. So maybe they track for three meals and then their fourth meal um, they don't track. And then eventually over time, we might progress them to not tracking any meals. And it's just one day of the week. So, you know, that would be trying to shift somebody away from, you know, the need to control their, their food intake and their body uh, and allowing them to develop a better sense of trust within themselves um, that they don't actually need this tool anymore. Um, and then over that time, we're also working on establishing a new uh, way of thinking. Um, and then, you know, within a good amount of time, <laughs> probably like 12 months to 18 months, now we've got this individual that feels extremely positive about their bodies. Um, they don't feel like they need to be tracking all the time. Um, but, you know, it's a, it's a tool that they can, you know, pull out if they, if and when they need it. Sorry. So on a long-term basis, then, it sounds like you're not a huge advocate of constant tracking in terms of, I, do, you, do you find that people develop? Because whenever I try to track and I've worked with a trainer and they're like, well, have you tracked your calories? That's the real, that I can make all of the workout sessions. I can definitely dial in my protein because I can see on the aesthetics what difference it makes. Mm -hmm. I find it very difficult to consistently track mm -hmm. my calories, basically, because I'm just like, <laughs> I can't really be asked, you know what I mean, to like work it out and put it in. Yeah, look, it is, I, I will say, um, I, I actually am a big advocate of people learning about what's in foods. And I think the best way to do that um, is to, to track. So, you know, if somebody hasn't ever tracked calories, tracked macros, used a tracking app, I'd say there is so much value um, in doing that for a given period of time, because I think ultimately um, it helps them uh, not only with, uh, I guess, any aesthetic goal that they might have, um, but it also is going to educate them about, you know, the nutritional composition of foods um, and then the energy density of certain foods. And, you know, that is a very good tool to have if we're thinking about how that might play out in the long term for our health um, in reducing the, uh, the risk of various diseases, you know, cancers, cardiovascular disease, uh, all those types of things. Um, you know, they're so prevalent in culture. And I think if you have an understanding of what it is you're taking in, at least then there's some informed choice. Now, do I think that people should track indefinitely? I'd say, I don't know, it probably depends on the person. Um, I think what we've got to look at is the um, degree in which it is negatively affecting, you know, their, their mental health and well-being um, or their lifestyle in general. Because I know certain folks that, you know, they've got a lifestyle where they don't have a whole lot of responsibilities. Uh, they don't have kids anymore. They've grown up, they're out of the house um, and they have a lot more free time. So for them, tracking their macros is a very small inconvenience uh, for 
a lot of game. You know, they're moving into their late 60s. They're feeling like they're living their best life. You know, they can moderate their calorie intake. They're getting a good amount of protein. And, you know, they, they're feeling extremely strong and empowered and healthy. Now, if somebody is, you know, a single mom and they have four children and she's working two jobs and she's trying to take care of her health and tracking is just not working for her and it's giving her a lot of stress and anxiety, I'd say maybe that's not the best um, tool for somebody in that situation or at least not for uh, any lengthy period of time. I would still say to that woman, learn about food, like, okay, let's do it um, at a slower pace. You know, you would probably be a little bit more generous with the time frame to learn that new skill um, and set more realistic expectations for her. And I think a lot of women are very tough on themselves too. So, you know, they're probably looking up to all of their, you know, um, social media influences that are single, don't have partners, their job is their fitness. And they're like, why can't I be like that? I'm like, well, you're so true. (laughs) When you're talking about the bum with the kids, I'm like, yeah, that's me. Three kids, two dogs (laughs) rushing around. Maybe that's why I'm not tracking my macros. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I I feel like I'm in that same boat. Like I, my, um, I guess lifestyle has changed so dramatically um, since, you know, I was in my early 20s to where I am now. Um, And I've been in the position where, you know, I I was a stepmom. I was managing four companies. I was trying to be a professional physique athlete. And I can tell you now there was so much sacrifice um, and that it, it almost wasn't worth the cost trying to do world championships and do all those things because it required so much consistency and tracking and just time. So again, do I think that people should be striving for, uh, you know, the freedom not to track? I don't know whether I could say yes, because some people, it just works so well with their lifestyle. It's not an inconvenience. uh, And they have a healthy relationship with that tracking. Um, I think when it becomes a problem is if people uh, don't have any other means of coping outside of that. I think if you were to take that away from somebody, and they're experiencing extreme anxiety, um, it's starting to impact relationships, friendships, maybe they're, you know, skipping out on social outings because they didn't, their phone's flat and they can't track their food, you know, I think we've got to look at the extent to which it is impacting their life. Um, And I would want to know that um, somebody has a healthy enough relationship with themselves, um, that they could be flexible if they needed to be. And I think, I've worked with a lot of the people that are stuck in this place where they are terrified of letting go of tracking. Um, So I'm not saying to them, I want you to stop tracking altogether, but I want you to develop the other skills um, to learn how to be okay without it. Let's find some moderation here. And, um, you know, what, where is that fear coming from? Is this because if you let go of that, you feel like, you know, you're nothing without your body or your physique Like, you know, you really want to get to the why um, so that we can start working on those things, because that's often a psychological, um, you know, challenge that we can work through and we can improve if they have the desire to do that. Yeah, for sure. It's kind of a self-esteem issue. Mm-hmm. I guess as well, it's harder, isn't it, as well for parents, right? Because um, I've got teenage children, so I'm conscious not to be tracking because I don't want to instill in them kind of mm-hmm. Uh, like what I did as a teenager, do you know what I mean? Where I'm trying to really micromanage. Mm-hmm. Um, with the um, with the calories overall, 
I want to kind of dive into the training in just a moment, but as a sort of segue, when we're looking at someone who wants fat loss versus somebody who's now trying to gain lean mm-hmm. tissue, mm-hmm. Uh, what have you found in terms of like, do we, do we definitely need a surplus to be able to gain muscle mass? Can we do it at a kind of maintenance level with increased protein? And if we're trying to lose body fat, what, what do we need to do there? Mm-hmm. So I think um, if we take this from the stance of uh, an individual is now wanting to work on adding muscle mass, um, whether or not they need to be in a surplus or not actually, again, depends on the individual. And the reason for that is um, there are a few subsets or population groups that are able to build muscle very successfully without very much dietary intervention. Uh, And that is uh, somebody that's brand new to uh, resistance training. So um, I guess the uh, new stimulus from resistance training, for instance, um, is so strong that the body is able to grow muscle very successfully in comparison to somebody that is more steady state uh, resistance trained. Um, And, you know, they've been working at it for a really long time. So um, it is unfortunately something that comes with diminishing returns. So uh, the more muscular you become, the longer you've been training, um, you kind of get to a point where you're just kind of oscillating in this like maintenance mode and you may be able to see uh, small increases at the elite end uh, for short periods of time with very intentional, very focused training. Um, but it's not really something that could be maintained. So basically, I would suggest that what we would see is that their weight um, and the muscularity kind of drops back down and kind of just hovers for a while. So there's those two distinct groups. Um, The other group of individuals um, that may not necessarily need to jump into a calorie surplus uh, immediately would be somebody that has a higher body fat percentage. Um, And the reason for that is they already have, um, by way of excess adipose tissue, um, a wonderful reserve of energy. So they've kind of got the caloric cushioning available to them so that when they do jump into resistance training um, and they're providing, you know, an adequate training stimulus, they're training at a good intensity, um, they have this reserve of energy that can then be repetitioned towards the purposes of building muscle. So I might say to somebody that um, comes to me and maybe they're sitting at, I don't know, let's say 30% body fat. I might just look at their current maintenance calories and provided that their current caloric intake is meeting all of their essential needs and that they're within what we would consider like a normal range of calories based on their lean body mass, I might just say, we're going to stay here actually. Um, And we're just going to put you into a really great resistance training program. um, And let's just let time do, do its thing. So you don't always need to be in uh, a surplus, but for somebody that is um, lower body fat percentage, um, and I will specifically reference uh, a lot of the competitors. So maybe they've just come through a really, um, you know, extreme diet. Uh, They've been on stage, they've gotten down to a very low body fat percentage. Somebody at that extreme doesn't have the uh, fat reserves or the fat storage Um, available to help with that building and that regeneration of new tissue. So therefore, we do need a calorie surplus coming in to be able to provide that energy um, towards the process of building tissue. So uh, does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. It does. And, you know, as you were saying this, I was thinking about myself because we can come on to like how you measure body composition in a moment. But I did uh, recently, uh, because I'm doing a whole set of like longevity testing and labs and things. 
And I did a DEXA scan on myself. And then I also did an in-body scan to see. Mm -hmm. And my muscle mass looked pretty good in certain areas. Obviously, the DEXA is really good at showing you kind of exactly where. Mm -hmm. Um, And But there was a difference between the two. They're meant to be, I think, within like a 1% difference. Mm -hmm. And yet when I did the DEXA, it was coming at around 19%. And then when I did the in-body, I don't believe this is right. It was like 14.5%. So my guess is somewhere in between but what I've noticed and it's interesting what you were saying there is when I looked at the DEXA actually an area to build up was the strength in my back and that's the bit that I really struggle with and I've been training for a long time like you were saying Mm -hmm. it's harder to make those modifications Mm -hmm. and what I'm finding is I can move up on you know my glute bridges and things like that and and get Mm -hmm. heavier and heavier Um, but when I'm looking at my back I can do a few kind of unassisted pull-ups but I can't seem to progress much more. Like if I'm doing a lap pull down, I'm really struggling. And I'm guessing part of that is actually coming down to the fueling. Mm-hmm. It's very possible. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, you, you just said what, 17% versus 14 on the different machines. That's not a whole lot of body fat and energy available too. And then I think we've got to look at, um, in addition to, um, you know, your current body fat levels, what are your other activities? Are you also, are you just focusing on resistance training? Um, Are you also incorporating some kind of other cardiovascular exercise and activity? Um, Because that all has an energy requirement as well. So again, if there isn't a lot of consistency in someone's training program, for instance, and some weeks they're going out for, you know, an hour walk with their girlfriends and another week they're going to go and do a hit class or a a boxing group class or something. And if there there isn't consistency, um, that means that then there's uh, inconsistent energy available um, if you are still, you know, trying to get through those um, those workouts. So uh, I think the best approach, honestly, for somebody that's looking to add muscle um, is to uh, make sure, number one, that you are, uh, I guess, eating an adequate amount of calories. And the reference range that I like to use for my clients to kind of gauge you're in a good place based on a moderate um, to high amount of activity is, and I'll use, I'm going to use kilograms because that's how I work, but um, anywhere from say um, 35 calories per gram, sorry, per um, kilogram of uh, lean body mass, all the way up to say 45 calories per kilogram of lean body mass. Um, That's kind of what I'm striving for, for my client's maintenance. Um, And then when they're in that place, then I'd say, okay, well, if the goal is now to build muscle, we want to be in a small surplus above that. Um, can we do that by your existing body fat stores or do we need to push a little bit higher so that we do have some more energy available um, for the purposes of building muscle? And then during that building phase, I would also say that um, it's probably important to minimize um, the amount of like higher intensity um, interval training or HIT training, just high intensity training in general. Um, because that has been shown to directly impede mTOR signaling pathways, which is important for that process of muscle building. Now, (laughs) that works along a spectrum. Um, Most of the studies that we've looked at um, for purposes of muscle building that are showing, you know, that concurrent training. So we've got a group of participants that are doing, um, you know, resistance training, you know, three to five times per week. um, And then they're doing some kind of cardiovascular work with it. Unfortunately, uh, not a lot of the studies are incorporating the levels of cardio that at least I'm seeing in the types of patients and uh, clients that I'm working with. 
the people that I see tend to do a whole lot more. So in these studies, it's usually like, you know, 30 minutes of moderate intensity cardio daily. Um, and in those cases, there isn't actually a whole lot of interference effect. Um, but again, if you were doing, you know, four hours, um, which I've seen, and it's, it's terrifying to think that there are coaches out there prescribing like, you know, two hours a day of cardio plus resistance training, seven days wow. a week. I've, I've seen this, um, you know, in that circumstance, even though it's just moderate intensity, steady state cardio, um, because of the, the total amount that's being performed, um, I just don't think that there, and again, I can't say for sure because I haven't seen any studies mm. that show that kind of, you know, um, extreme uh, cardio intervention, but that's probably going to, if you want my opinion, have some negative impact on their ability to recover from resistance training. And same if you're doing, you know, an hour of HIIT cardio, you know, six days a week, which again, I've seen that um, people are getting prescribed 60 minutes of intervals on the Stairmaster daily and their resistance training, uh, and they're in a calorie deficit, you know, those things are likely to really negatively impact someone's um, you know, energy availability for the purposes of muscle recovery. That's really important. I'm so glad you clarified that because I remember speaking to Dr. Stacey Sims about this and, and I've done her programs about low energy availability. And she, she's very much uh, a fan of exercise being purposeful and intentional. And I think that as a mum, it's quite uh, easy to trip into doing way more activity than you thought, you know, like I'll get to the end of the day and look at my aura ring, particularly at a weekend, and I'm 20, 22,000 steps in. And that on top of resistance training is probably quite a lot of energy demands, isn't it? But you're just yeah. <laughs> busy with the kids and just generally doing stuff. And I, I guess, even though I know it and it's weird, it's almost like sometimes it takes someone to point out to you, actually you're doing a lot on unintentional. It's not like they were scheduled sessions, yeah. but you are kind of moving around a lot. Yeah. And I think, I mean, a good gauge for like knowing whether you're doing too much in that particular scenario would be like, are you noticing like weight loss on the weekends? Because, you know, obviously that's going to be a pretty big predicament or a predictor of energy availability. So, you know, if you're trying to optimize your recovery for the purposes of building muscle and, you know, you're noticing that, you know, specifically on three days of the week where you're a lot more active and it might just be incidental movement where you're running errands, you're dropping the kids off at their, you know, weekend sport, and then you're going for a walk with your girlfriend and you're doing your training or whatever it might be like, um, that to me, I would probably say like monitor your weight. Um, and then, um, that would be one way that you could determine, um, whether those days are, you know, optimal or not. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so then looking at the training, when people are looking at optimizing their training program and schedule, um, I guess the first thing I think that would be really helpful to explain to listeners is the difference between strength training, more power-based training, and hypertrophy training, and what results they can expect from doing those. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think um, if we're looking specifically for um, outcomes of hypertrophy, so if you're doing your training, if you're being intentional about going into the gym because you want to build muscle, um, the good news about that is that we are, it's pretty, I think it's generally agreed now across the scientific community that um, you can do a range of different rep ranges and still achieve really good results. 
Um, so you can incorporate some strength-based rep ranges. So that is looking at, you know, one to six, um, typically with heavier loads, working close to failure, um, as well as working at that hypertrophy rep range. You're probably anywhere from, say, you know, your six to 15, um, moderate uh, training loads, and then all the way up to high rep ranges, you know, 15 and above um, at light loads. All of those different circumstances and styles of training have been shown uh, to still uh, elicit a great hypertrophy response. So I think the beauty of that is that whether you're somebody, and I know I've got friends and it's usually males, they tend to be a little bit more ego-driven. So they like to train in that strength rep range. Women, on the other hand, you know, maybe we're a little bit more timid, though I've got plenty of friends that are definitely, I want to go and lift heavy today. Um, But for the most part, I think women might prefer to work in that moderate uh, rep range, moderate loads, and then maybe even in the higher rep ranges with light loads. So again, I think that's more just, you know, from a historical standpoint where, you know, lifting and resistance training has come from, at least for women. Um, You know, we probably started out with, you know, the aerobic Oz style and, you know, some of these kind of, um, you know, TV shows where it's a little bit more cardiovascular. uh, And that's just where women have kind of felt most comfortable because it's part of like a societal trend. But there's definitely been a lot more of a movement, I think, in recent years for women um, gravitating towards strength training um, because it is also really beneficial. Um, And to me, uh, it was a really empowering process. I've done multiple powerlifting competitions now and I love it. Um, It's not something that I would want to do all the time, but part of my training now and how I would recommend to clients um, if they like, you know, diversity, which, you know, I think a lot of people enjoy having um, an element of change in their program because it's exciting, it's new. Um, The good thing is you can do all of the rep ranges. I think one of the key, um, you know, uh, predictors, I guess, of muscle hypertrophy outcomes Uh, making sure that you are progressively overloading over time. Um, So you want to see your training volumes trending up, you know, over your training age and years, Um, but also making sure that as you're doing that, that you're also training um, at a high intensity. Um, So working within, um, you know, a perceived uh, rate of exertion, which is uh, the RPE scale, you know, somewhere from 7.5, maybe up to 9.5. And occasionally it's probably okay if you hit a a failure set at 10, you know, you're going to failure. Um, So, yeah, that's kind of the way that I program. And I think um, all of the rep ranges have their value. Um, if we were to look at strength as the, the um, number one priority outcome, then that's a little different. Uh, we do need to be working in that strength rep range um, in efforts to see strength improvements. So that's kind of like a skill, you know. Um, similarly said, you know, if you're a professional soccer player or a track sprinter, um, you want to be doing that sport, that, um, you know, specific um, movement, that training style, on a regular basis to improve that skill. So strength training is similar in that regard. Um, but that that being said, it's also not an invaluable, um, uh, I guess, exercise to also incorporate a little bit of hypertrophy-based, um, you know, training as well, um, you know, from an exercise diversity standpoint um, too. And have you found, I know Stacey talks about like providing a really strong stimulus for women that are going through perimenopause or menopause, that because of that drop off in estrogen, they -hmm. should be focusing on that kind of lower repetition, higher resistance training, or have you found that actually you're getting good results when you're mixing up the rep ranges? I'm curious as to what you found with clients in that category. 
Um, I don't know that I've actually read any research um, that specifically focus on women uh, going or that are in perimenopause and then uh, different types of strength training. So I don't know that there, there are, um, but I can speak to that like anecdotally and just the clientele that I'm working with. And um, I would say that there are probably other strategies that I would personally um, probably go to first before I specifically jumped into, you've got to do heavy strength training. Um, I might be more inclined to um, have my clients provide like a, sub a subjective score um, report to me. So I often will look at uh, their recoverability, their fatigue levels, their mood, uh, their energy levels, um, I guess, hunger and appetite. Uh, you know, PMS, you know, some of the women that are still, you know, in that space experience negative symptoms, but they're not just, they're just not getting an actual, you know, menstrual cycle anymore. They're not having that bleak. So um, I tend to work with those clients a little bit more subjectively. And if we are to, I'm going to dance across to the literature in, uh, I guess, um, menstrual cycle and uh, different types of strength training, um, the results are quite mixed. Um, I've read a couple of randomized control trials that show that women uh, tend to have a decrease or reduction in strength. Um, you know, around the time of their cycle, but I've also read randomized control trials that have shown no difference in strength. So I think it is something that at least what we know at the moment, really subjective, and it's based upon the individual. So um, I think some coaches probably don't even ask those types of questions. So I think a really valuable, um, you know, introduction into their coaching onboarding would be to kind of find out when their cycle is, um, in the past, have they experienced any negative symptoms? Um, generally, what's your energy like? How's your mood? Um, and then I might even program, you know, my deloads for a client around their period um, so that there isn't that, you know, pressure to be in there performing like an RPE 9, which even for me, like I've got to get myself psyched up, you know, to do that <laughs> on a good day. So if you're not feeling well uh, and then you've also got the physiological uh, symptoms of pain and bloating and cramping. Camping. It's like, no. So I don't do any HIIT training personally, you know, in the week leading up or during ovulation um, because it's just too painful. So, you know, I've got specific times for me of the month where I'm like, okay, I know I can go hard. Um, and I, you know, that's something I never used to do was track my cycle. So, you know, that has been really advantageous about how I program. Um, but for some women, it's not as much of a big deal. You know, some people don't get those extreme symptoms. So um, relating this back to your question around women that are going through menopause, um, it is so individual. And I'm actually a big advocate of having them working with their healthcare team, um, specifically their endocrinologist, probably their OBG, um, and looking at ways where they can get their estrogen levels and their testosterone levels back to the normal reference range. Um, hormone replacement therapy, there's a lot of taboo uh, and stigma uh, and I think, unfortunately, it's been created through lack of knowledge, lack of education. Uh, I think that information in the wrong hands has probably led this um, phenomenon of hormone replacement therapy being like steroids. And it is not. It's not the same thing. So, you know, I would say probably 50% of the women that I'm working with and my team that are over, you know, the age of 40 and they're not getting their cycle anymore, they're, we're encouraging them to work with their doctors, find out what their blood biomarkers are um, saying, how can we improve these? We're already doing everything we can, dietary you know, um, and lifestyle step from a standpoint, 
What else can we do to support you so that you feel your best? Um, and most of them are starting to go into that process of getting their testosterone levels back to the normal reference range. And again, it's a therapeutic dose. We're not putting people into a place where they're achieving like supra physiological, um, you know, testosterone levels. It's no, no, they're just going back into how everybody else, you know, is. So, you know, that makes a, a substantial difference to how they feel, their long-term performance. And ultimately if they're feeling better, guess what? They get better results because they're training hard. You know, they're able to be consistent. They're not fatigued all the time. Um, you know, so I think there's a lot of things that we can do outside of like specific training intervention um, that can help with, with that. Yeah, amazing. Amazing. I always encourage women to go and get tested. Last mm -hmm. question then before you go, you've been so generous with your time. Um, zone two training. I think I've even seen a photo of you. I think I listened to you with Peter Atier. He's obviously a massive, massive fan of zone <laughs> two for longevity. Mm -hmm. um, what are your thoughts then just lastly around cardio and how much we should be doing? Mm -hmm. I think the answer to that is probably very vague and very broad. And I don't think that we know that there is a specific answer. Um, I'm a huge advocate of incorporating some cardio. I think, you know, looking at all of the data about, you know, somebody's cardiovascular health and their VO2 max, those types of things, it is very consistently showing that it can have um, so many benefits across, you know, so many different, um, I guess, health conditions. So um, I have all of my clients, you know, trying to hit step targets, um, you know, up to the age of like 70, I've got women that are, you know, and they really enjoy it. And I think, you know, it's, there's so many benefits of exercise, period. Um, not just the physiological ones, but, you know, from a psychological standpoint too. So I'm a big advocate of cardio. I do think that we need to, um, you know, everything in moderation. Um, you know, some of my older clients now, you know, there is a focus on strength and being building muscle. Um, but we, you know, we're not going at it like the perspective of a bodybuilder trying to be the most muscular. We're actually freeing up some of their time to also do some kind of cardiovascular work, um, some, some movement um, and some mobility. They're trying to stay functional. So, uh, yeah, there is elements of cardio in uh, some of my older clients' programs, and I think it's uh, a massive value add. So I am in line with Peter Atiyah's thoughts on zone two training. But, again, I think it depends on somebody's goals because, you know, if someone came to me and they said, you know what, I want to be a world champion jiu-jitsu player. And, uh, but I also really think that I'd be pretty good at bodybuilding. Like, you know, there's, <laughs> there's only so many hours in the day. And I think sometimes we just have to set realistic expectations for our clients um, and help them, you know, develop a solid plan that does a little bit of all elements of, um, you know, health and fitness. So, um, yeah, I think zone two is a, a great thing. I think some occasional HIIT training is also a great thing. Uh, the same way that I all think a little bit of resistance training is a great thing. So, yeah. That mixing it up. Amazing. Where can people find more about you, about your app, your coaching programs? Yep. So uh, everything uh, that I have is listed uh, on my Instagram page. So my Instagram is just Holly T Baxter. 
um, you'll be able to get access to the uh, Carbon Diet Coach, which is my nutrition coaching app. Um, you'll be able to get access to my uh, team of coaches. So we have a chiropractor, a physical therapist, exercise scientists, dietitians, all the good stuff. I still coach. Um, and uh, I guess then all of our books, educational material, products and services are on my website. So you can find all that in the link in my Instagram. <laughs> amazing thank you so much for coming on holly it's been such a joy speaking to you and you've just got like such a wealth of knowledge and also real life experience which is amazing to have those <laughs> two things combined so thank you so much for coming on the show thank you appreciate your time thank you for listening to today's show and for your interest in health optimization for high performance if you're new to my podcast you may be interested to know that you can get a free health score and report complete with personalized recommendations on how to optimize your sleep nutrition fitness and resilience in the top link in the show notes below i hope you enjoyed this episode links to everything we talked about are also in the show notes and if you enjoyed today's show please subscribe for more